0: Hello and welcome to our RSTM podcast series. I'm Priyanka and today I'm joined by Harry, a core surgical trainee.
1: Hi, I'm Harry, nice to meet you all.
0: And Chris, a trauma and orthopaedic registrar and RCSE research fellow.
1: Hey, hi, all. I'm Chris,
2: nice to be here.
0: So thank you both for joining us and today we're going to be talking about priority setting partnerships. So this will be podcast two in our series and if you haven't already listened to our first podcast on the RSTN make sure you do give it a little listen. So firstly to start off with both of you have recently published some work looking at research priorities for complex fractures which is amazing and I'm sure will be very valuable for future projects so congratulations.
1: Thanks very much.
0: OK, so for this podcast, I think we should start right from the beginning with this topic. And maybe, Chris, you can help us out with this one. But what exactly is a priority setting partnership and why is it important?
2: Yeah, so a priority setting partnership uh, is where you get everyone involved in a certain area of uh, healthcare, care, um, patients and healthcare professionals and, and other relevant stakeholders, and you survey them to see what their views are to see what they think needs to be researched in the particular area that you're looking at. Um, And then the idea is that you then come up with a top 10 number of questions in that area, and that helps guide funders as to what research needs doing. Because previously, you know, what has happened up until pretty recently is that you could just get a gifted uh, academic professor that comes up with a question that they think is important. They write a very eloquent summary of the literature and, uh, and then, the funding body reads it and thinks, wow, that sounds really quite compelling. Um, And that they give them, you know, a couple of million pounds of taxpayers' money. But perhaps it's a question that no one else was really interested in. Or people are so uninterested in it that 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 study actually fails and it it doesn't deliver. So um, a priority-setting partnership is really, you know, for for the NIHR, that it helps them use, decide how taxpayers' money is going to be used, because healthcare is such a broad area that if you there's only you know that they have specialists on their panel but you know it's really hard for them to sway through all the possible questions um, that, that that could be that could be answered or, or asked so it's really a way of getting priorities and questions and directing those putting them in a, in a very succinct way uh, for funders to then take forward and and decide how they're going to spend you know charity or taxpayers' pennies
1: yeah, I mean, that, that's a very comprehensive answer, really, just to say that the, it's, it's made up of um, specialists in an area, um, other stakeholders like patients who have maybe experienced the condition in question. Uh, and then the committee And um, will come into more detail about how it's structured later. Yeah. And that they achieve exactly what Chris has just outlined.
0: Okay, so we talked about how priority-setting partnerships identify top 10 research questions to basically guide future funding, but how exactly do PSPs do that?
2: Yeah, so they, um, they so they bring together yeah, patients and healthcare professionals. Um, the sort of first step is to um, try and get some funding, identify the scope and the area that you want to research, uh, and then you get relevant people. So, you'll get patients with experience of that condition, uh, healthcare professionals that treat it, and then anyone else that might be people that run charities or that have, uh, you know, a, a managerial role in organising care. And then you get them together and you say, right, what do you think of this scope? Um, Do you think we've got everyone we need? And, you know, who, who should we ask? How should we ask them? Uh, and then they go on and and then you, you sort of launch the launched a survey uh, there's a few rounds that we may come on to but they launched a survey and they say this is uh, this is what needs to happen
1: essentially the survey is something that exists uh, you know back in the day it would be paper these days you often use a system like uh, google forms mm-hmm. and you're asking the the patients and the clinicians and um, allied health professionals you know for example we'll take complex fractures which is what we did you know what is important to patients and doctors in and surgeons in complex fractures so you know is it something like how is rehabilitation conducted or how is pain managed so the the survey is, is asking people what they would like to have improved about their care or the care they deliver to patients
0: sure so from what we've spoken so far it seems like healthcare professionals and patients are the main people involved in priority setting partnerships but is there anyone else that might be involved?
2: Uh, so okay, it really would be those two key um, stakeholder groups, so patients and healthcare professionals. And the key is that, you know, it's not just surgeons, it's not just doctors, uh, you know, it's um, allied healthcare professionals, um, psychologists, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, nursing staff. Uh, and then, as I say, I mean, those would be the, those are the sort of the key makeup and then other ones uh, so we've got um, some charities that we partnered with. We've got um, people on their board who who are coming just to see if the questions that are coming align to their aims, and and then they can just sort of steer their charities' scope uh, in a similar direction if they're interested. So really, you know, it can be can be anyone involved that that has got an interest in in improving he- health in a certain area
0: so we touched on the priority setting partnership that both of you have done for complex fractures but say for example if someone was a complete amateur how could they set up a priority setting partnership
2: so what you would do is you'd look on the james and Lynn alliance website and then you'd see all the ones that have already been done let's say there's a hundred i think there's you know i think there's over 100 now but roughly 100 and then you might say oh look that one's already been done i'll just go and answer one of those questions but if you know you've looked through you can't find anything that is is close to the area you're interested in, Uh, then you would say, right, I think this needs to happen. Uh, I think we should focus on this area. You find two or three people uh, who are interested in taking the lead, and then you would apply for funding. So, for instance, often they're from professional societies, so the the Orthopedic Trauma Society, um, AOUK, have, have funded the Complex Fractures one. You can also ask, yeah, the British Autopreneur Association. They, they, they've they got a little pot that, that they will give every year to partially fund them. You can ask BatPress or RSTN or, you know, the Hand Society. Um, so that's what you do. And once you've got some funding, uh, you would then apply to the JLA and say, you do a readiness questionnaire and you say, this is the idea, this is the scope, this is, who, this is what we want to do, this is when we want to do it, uh, and this is how we're going to do it. Uh, what do you what do you think of that and they'll say sounds good or they'll say "Mm, no you need to think a bit more about this maybe you need some more funding maybe you need to get a bit wider uh, engagement and and then come back to us so those are the first sort of steps um, that you would need to go through and in terms of funding there's a template cost uh, on the JLA website which I I think they quote sort of 30 to fifty thousand pounds to do one of these Uh, And so if you're paying it, you know, if you're paying everyone and patients and and people to attend and you're paying a coordinator and the lead, you know, that that could be up to 50,000 pounds. But if it's incorporating PhD students or people that have already got salaries, you know, at the hospital, then you could do you could deliver one in uh, with around 20,000 pounds, I think would be the minimum.
1: I think it might be worth talking about the team and who it's made up of. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the team, as Chris says, you have the chair and that that's someone sort of provided by the James Lind Alliance. And then you have the information specialist or specialists, uh, which is a role that uh, Chris led with and I supported with going through and checking the evidence behind questions. And we'll come on to the exact role of each. You have then experts in the field. So maybe consultant surgeons or medics, physiotherapists, psychologists who can add different perspectives. And they sort of form the committee who will meet periodically and drive the process forward uh, under the sort of quality control of the chair from the James Lind Alliance themselves. Does that sound right, Chris? Yeah, that's uh, that's the sort of main makeup of it. Yeah.
0: Okay, great. So say, for example, now we've set up a priority setting partnership. How does it really run after you've set one up?
2: Yeah, so you've set it up. You've had uh, you've got you've got. A load of patients. You've got a load of healthcare professionals and other stakeholders. You get them round a the table or a Zoom room, and then you say, um, again, you agree the protocol. Everyone thinks, yeah, that sounds about right. Or they say, no, we should exclude that, or we should include that, or you know, what about should we include children or not? And then once everyone sort of agrees, uh, and you've looked at other um, PSPs on the JLA website, and you think that you've got a, a nice scope, then you design a survey, and so you, you and what you're just trying to find out is Broadly speaking, what are people's um, interests? So for complex fractures, you were asking, you know, what are you interested in the treatment of complex fractures? And you could just ask them that question. But most, in most cases, you give them a bit more prompting. So you might say, what are you interested in, you know, in the early treatment or, you know, in the outpatient rehabilitation or, uh, you know, or, or anything else you want to tell us? So you do a survey and, you, and they're white space boxes, just asking. And then that runs for a few months. That's, so that's number one. So you take those and you'll you'll get anywhere between sort of 200 and several thousand responses to that. And some of them may be really defined questions, you know, like what is the best way to control hemorrhage in pelvic fractures? They might be really discrete questions, but often they're not. And so for patients, it's quite difficult. When you give, particularly patients that have had complex fractures or major trauma, particularly in the early phase, if you, if you see them on the ward and you give them a piece of paper, you know that they're often taken aback, and uh, that white space is is just a void. And so I remember speaking to one patient, and they didn't really know what to say or have any thoughts on it, but they did say, "Oh, you know, I was I was happy with my treatment, but um, it was all good, and they treated my leg. Oh, you know, they sort of realised a couple of weeks later that I'd broken one of my wrist bones." And um, But no, I was otherwise pretty happy. So, you know, that was quite a long dialogue. And, and, and way, the way that was converted into a question is, you know, how can we avoid missing injuries in patients with complex fractures? So um, you take all the responses and then you generate questions from them. And sometimes you'll get a, like a story and someone will just tell you the whole story. And you, you distill that into, into questions that are similar. You then come up with a list of about 80 questions. Uh, and then you put that to the steering group, and then the steering group then go on and refine those a bit, and then you go and check the evidence. Uh, and yeah, I've been talking for a bit, and and uh, so I'll hand over to Harry because he he did the next bit.
1: Yeah, so the the evidence check's interesting, uh, especially if you've done something like systematic reviewing before, it will feel somewhat familiar, but it's it's slightly different as well. So for example. In our case, the JLA criteria within the relatively recent time frame, five or six years, had there been level one, so a randomized controlled trial research into that question. So if we take a simple example, in a complex fracture uh, in the tibial plateau, should a patient be treated with, uh, you know, plate X or plate Y? Had there been a trial four years ago, we would say, look, that, that's a definitive answer. This trial has answered that. We won't include that. But you can imagine for most questions, which are quite sort of vague and open, there isn't a trial from the last few years. So we found that very little had already been answered according to that criteria. In summary, you perform 40 or 50 small systematic reviews with a very uh, strict study type and date criteria when you're doing it, put it into a table and say to the group, look, um, you know, 47 of these 50 questions remain unanswered and they can continue to the next stage of the process.
0: Great. So what is the next stage of the process then?
2: Yeah. So the next stage, once you've checked the evidence, is that uh, you say, right, we had about 50, 60 questions and um, of which a number of those were answered. And we've got 48 questions that we now know have not been answered. And so then we will going to go and do survey two And so once again, everyone in the steering group and the healthcare professionals and patients have had their look and they say, yeah, I think that that's fair. And I think and what what we do is you look back as well and you say of all the the 200 or 1,000 responses to survey one, the patients and the steering group look and they say, yeah, that that question, that initial submission. I agree, Chris, I agree that question there that they said represents that sort of one of those 48 summary questions. Or they'll say no it doesn't we need to split that up and do something else so once you've got those summary questions around 50 you do survey two and then in that case again you can have paper or online or both responses uh, and then you say to people please tick your top 10 questions uh, and that can be done in a different way you can you can do a top 10 and then you can filter it down and say now put these in the right order but broadly speaking you're saying pick your top 10, again, healthcare professionals, patients and other stakeholders, you then analyze that and say, right, what were the what were the top ones. And, and one of the important things is that you want the patients to have an equal voice. Yeah, if you've got 10 patient responses and 100 um, healthcare professionals, you weight it according, you, you sort of do a ranking of the top 10 patients and healthcare professional priorities, and you try and rank them so that the patients have got an equal voice. So it's not quite that their, their votes count for 10 times as many. But it's um, in, in the ranking, you, you, you try and make that fair. And the James Lind Alliance advisor helps you to do that sort of transparently and independently. You th- you've then got a list and you've got a ranking from, you know, one to 48. And then you look around the table and you say, right, how many can we take to the final workshop? Normally, it's around 15 to 25. In our case, it was um, virtually. So we did it. We had 18. You then get some patients and healthcare professionals around 10 of each to a workshop. Uh, and then you take those 18 and you just try and whittle them down and come to a consensus of what you agree is the top 10. Uh, and then you get the top 10 and then you go and shout about it and um, <laughs> tell everyone. Um, so that's that, that's that up to that bit.
0: OK, so you've given us quite a few steps there and it sounds like quite a lengthy process. And Harry mentioned 40 to 50 systematic reviews. So how long do you estimate it takes to carry out all this?
2: Yeah, so I think they quote eighteen months on on the website, and I think our find ours was about twenty one months. It was a little longer because of COVID, but um, it, it varies on your on your own drive. You know, it's very easy just to sort of start a project with a big steering group, and then you can just you know wait and wait and um, you know if you're not really pushing people to to keep replying and drive responses, you know, it, it can drag on. And I've seen other ones where you know it, it has dragged on for you know for a couple of years for those sorts of reasons. Uh, but generally speaking, eighteen months. Two years is is what you'd expect from the time you sort of you've got some funding together and you're putting the application into the JLA.
1: Um, Chris, one of our motivations for doing this podcast was in the hope that we could inspire and guide other people to do similar projects. So we faced some challenges with uh, engagement during COVID and just getting people to respond to the survey. So what tips would you give to future Chris Bretherton if he was doing this again to get people to fill in the survey and to make it work during a pandemic?
2: Yeah, well, indeed, I am doing uh, I'm doing another one. So my advice to myself and to other people has been, um, yeah, some key things are your steering group. You know, it's very easy to think that you want a steering group of just the biggest profs with the, you know, the biggest number of letters after their name. And uh, I think that's probably what most people go for in, in, intuitively. But the reality is that that only goes so far. So they're those those big profs are very good at sort of sending some emails out to people. but the, the absolutely fundamental challenge is getting patient responses. Mm. And um, so for the major trauma one, we were like, right, there's 25, 26, 28 major trauma centres in England and Wales. This is going to be fine. We've got loads of people. We'll easily get the responses. But, um, you know, it didn't work like that because, you know, to actually, as I said, to, to get a patient, particularly for you know the first part of the survey, to go to a patient and say, please fill this in it'll just be, a, a, they'll draw a blank and they, and they really need someone to sit down with them for five minutes and say, look, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Do you need any help with that? What do you think? So, you know, big profs, they don't have time to do that. So really you, you want a mix of, of eminent people that have got good networks and you want people that are on the, you know, on the front line of all sorts of levels of seniority that are passionate about the project and are, and are going to happy to sort of sit down with patients in hospital and clinic And and give them this uh, information. So that's the key, which is basically diversity on your steering group is is point number one. Uh, Point number two is that you need some kind of um, like magic bullet for patient responses. And, you know, when we did it, we thought our magic bullet for complex fractures would just be that there's there's a major trauma network. But that, that wasn't enough, as I've sort of alluded to. So many people have like charities. So there's I think there's a, you know, there's a big diabetes or stroke charity, and they had a really good patient group from Patient networks from these charities, so that was their way of getting patient engagement. Other people have got um, community groups, um, at, at various hospitals. So you know that's that's useful. And, and then what we're doing for the, this new major trauma one is that we're doing an, an ethics application to post this out um, to people, uh, to patients using the Tarn network. Now that's not been done, but the reality was the patient responses—they don't come by magic. They don't just appear. That you know they take a lot of work, and you really need a strategy. Um, just saying that you're going to leave some leaflets in clinic. Uh, they're going to roll in. That that doesn't work. Uh, so that was number two. And uh, yeah, we'll leave it there for now, unless you've got anything
1: to add, Harry. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all right. And um, We were one of the first groups to do this during coronavirus. And there was a lot of PSPs which shut up shop and said, look, we'll resume again uh, in the hope that it would all blow over after six months. So uh, various things were taken online um how would you reflect on how that went and how things from that process could be sustained for the future
2: Yeah no so I think online is a great way of doing it um and uh, you know keeping costs down reaching more people so we're for the major trauma one we're doing an international one which lends itself to doing it online so I think for the steering group meetings and everything great why why not online but for gathering the patient responses um you know often these are done at face-to-face conferences you go to a face-to-face conference there's a hundred 300 people there you get you print out a survey or you give a link you get you know and you get 100 responses within within five minutes which doesn't really work online people you know if you sit them down and say right you're going to wait five minutes now during this talk and then you're going to leave then you'll get it but if you just put it on a link you know on a zoom link people will just ignore it and they'll go and have a cup of tea instead uh, so that's one limitation. And the other limitation is um, many people uh, use patient volunteers. So patient volunteers go into hospital. Um, and if they're on the steering group or they're engaged, they can, when they're talking to patients um, on the wards, that they go and they give these surveys and, and they do them. And That's what other PSPs have done in the past. But during COVID, you know, that's not been possible. And and again, so you really need to think, where are these patient responses going to come from? And yeah, the reality was, um, you know, the people on the steering group, motivated members, you know, going in, putting the time in and going and finding patients on the wards that were suitable. They're on the toilet, coming back a couple of hours later, they're having a wash, come back a couple of hours later. Sort of hard hard time to put in to go and to get those responses and, and, and going to sort of discrete clinics where you know that your uh, eligible patient population are gonna be. So I don't think the COVID pandemic ness you know necessarily um is gonna change things too much.
1: But again, you just got to think about where your patient response is going to come from. Great, thanks. So we've gone quite a lot into the weeds there on the nuts and bolts of how to get one of these done effectively. Uh, But I think we should just summarise by saying that the outcome is that you you have a paper written up, which gives uh, top 10 questions, unanswered research questions in a particular area. So in the case of what we did within complex fractures, 10 important research questions the process has delivered which are highly desirable for the NHR and other funding bodies to fund over the next 5 10 15 years uh, as determined by patients and clinicians so that's that's what we're doing it for
0: great thank you so much chris and harry for wonderfully summarizing that for us so we've got some fun questions now for chris so chris if you could speak to the house officer version of yourself what advice would you give them for getting involved in research
2: Oh no! I thought you were going to ask. I thought I was going to break into my raps and lunch beat. there, yeah, but uh, it's so, an opportunity.
0: To... You still can do.
2: Well, I, I get a lot. I think there's a lot of negativity about uh, about bringing lunch to work, and you know, most people seem to want them to have their have the canteen open all night. So again, I'll I'll try I'll try and steer away from that, and instead I'll I'll just say uh, you know it's got to be collaborative research. You got to get a, get on that early. So you know, if you're a med student or you're an F1, get on Twitter, get on your local. Um, surgical group get on a, on the WhatsApp group, people will post a link and say "Look, there's new this new collaborative research study running, we're doing it in 100 centres around the country. And you just get involved and you collect data at your own hospital, you do that, you get a flavor for it. The next one, you know, you asked to be on the steering committee, and then you're running it. And then the next one, well, well, by that time, hopefully, you can then be on a grant application to take the to take the research question forward that, that was based on that sort of collaborative research survey. Um so yeah it's just sort of starting getting getting on uh, 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 and collecting some data and then working your way up through the responsibility as as you're in as you're in uh, interest
0: <laughs> Bless you Harry I think we just caught the end of a sneeze But um Chris can you remember your first ever research project and what was it
2: Yes I think it was um it, it was either one on um an audit of vaccination in renal dialysis patients or it was what a collaborative project on inguinal hernias. And, um, yeah, that was a very, yeah, that was sort of 10 hours work for, yeah, a collaborative publication. So that was, um, and I was definitely in the sort of box-ticking zone in, in that in that stage of my career, uh, career, less so now.
0: Amazing. So, well, that's all for today's podcast, and I really do hope both of you have had some fun talking about Priority setting partnerships, and thank you so much for joining.
2: Thanks very much. Yeah, and yeah, feel free to you know find us on find me on Twitter or email, or you can look at you know it's worth just looking at the JLA um, JLA website for more information on this. Thanks very much.
1: It's worth following the James Lind Alliance on Twitter, and on their website you can find information of the ongoing skin cancer surgery PSP, uh, which is inviting responses relevant to the listeners of the RSTM podcast thanks very much
0: amazing well that's all for today's podcast a big big thank you to chris and harry for joining us today and a big thank you if you are listening out there make sure you do check out our other podcasts and subscribe to find out when we release any new podcasts again thank you and bye bye